0: Newtkins, that's how you pronounce it, right?
1: Uh, Newtkins, but it's it's very hard to (laughs) pronounce. Yeah. It's like the O is, the EU is O, and O O is um, very particular like sound that that doesn't exist in English. Yeah. Same as like O, so double like O-O. But that was easier to pronounce. Uh, and, And we also have E. Uh, which is like i uh, e, and then what well, does sounds sort of similar, but like a e is very. Uh, specific. <laughs> but like most of the time, English people will pronounce it as uh, uh, n- uh, Newtkins.
0: Newtkins, Newtkins, cool.
1: Which is like n e w t, uh, and then k i n s or something,
0: uh, which nice. which also
1: sounds very similar, and uh, like I literally don't care. So yeah, <laughs> like, whichever <laughs> cool.
0: works. Go. Cool. All right. Well, uh, yeah, let's get started, man. Um, Today, I'm excited to talk with Tim uh, Newtkins. (laughs) He has been on the Next.js core team, I guess, lead maintainer and Vercel for about six years, so probably Next.js before that. How long have you been working on Next?
1: Um, Almost seven years, I think. Uh, It's uh, it's definitely been a long time, yeah.
0: Nice. Um, Cool, man. So... We've had a few episodes on React Server Components, and um, you know, you and I had a chance to work together last year, and you were telling me recently like you've been um, hearing some of those episodes and thought it'd be fun to come on and chat about it, because obviously your life has been like React Server Components lately. And so um, I thought for this conversation be fun to basically just talk, recap the last few episodes, make sure kind of what we're saying is is how you think about how things work, um, specifically the rendering stuff, the server-side rendering versus the server component rendering. And um, because I know it's it's helped us just understand kind of the mental model. And then maybe we can yep. talk about some of the caching stuff as it relates again to the mental model. Because I think uh, from some of your discussion on Twitter, it seems like I always, I always find it, find it helpful to hear how the creator and maintainers of a project think about the mental model for a tool, because it can be easy, especially for programmers to just dig into specific APIs. But when you understand how it's intended to use, which parts you're supposed to be thinking about you know, as an app developer, and which parts should kind of be abstracted away, I feel like that, that helps a lot. So that's what I was kind of hoping to get out of this conversation.
1: Yeah, definitely. Sounds good.
0: Cool. So, yeah, let's just do a quick recap and make sure kind of some of the stuff we were saying in the last few episodes was correct. I think the big takeaway was um, for us and for some other folks was just understanding rendering server component tree versus rendering as it relates to actually getting something into the browser. And my kind of TLDR here is... uh, when we talk about rendering server components, we're talking about this kind of higher level abstract concept of turning a tree, uh, getting a tree as a result of rendering some code, basically. And there's this two-step 2, two step pass of rendering that happens on the server. You render a server tree into a client tree. And then on the initial request, um, that client tree can come up as HTML. And so the browser can request it let's just set aside streaming versus like render to string from now, I think at a high level, right? The browser just gets the HTML representation of the client tree that came from the server tree and browsers know how to paint HTML. So that's how it gets painted. And then on subsequent requests, the server renders the new requested server tree into a client tree. But instead of giving it as HTML, it gives it as a JSON format, which is the RSC payload, which the, React app that's now running in the browser knows how to render, knows how to paint, and it has create elements, but it also has references to client components that are already loaded up in the browser. So those are like the two ways that server components end up getting painted to the to the screen. Is that more or less kind of accurate?
1: Yeah, um, that, that makes mostly sense. Uh, the uh, like the way that we've been talking about this is not exactly like claimed tree per se, but uh, what we call the RC payload. Um uh, so the React server components payload. Um that one is basically uh you render the the server components. So you take the server components tree, uh you render that using like this React API for it. Um you you basically give it like a um like so like react components uh in, in a sense uh like we basically we like wrap everything into a virtual server component like uh an, another module that's like wrapping all like your code so that we ca- can create a server component that basically like, renders all your like layouts and loading and it creates a suspense for that um adds in the templates like that kind of thing so that is rendered to uh, to this like intermediate representation. Uh, that's the RSC payload. Um, so RSC payload, uh, you can do two things with that. Like one is you can render it to HTML. Um, so you basically call the, the normal like React DOM render to string. In um, in our case, we use render to stream so that it can do streaming. Uh, but you can also call render to string on it. Like that's what we do to create like static HTML. Um, So in a sense, like you were saying, that's like the client component tree in a way, right? Like you're basically like creating a React tree that is, um, like has all the, like from the server components tree, it basically like rendered to like all the divs and all the p tags and all that from that like server component. But then if there is a client component you're rendering in the server component, that would be a reference in this like payload. And then like the render to HTML or render to string is um, used to to basically like it, it that knows how to use those references to then like require the right code on the server or on the client um, to, to then like load the code up and start rendering that as well. So in the server component like RC rendering files, um, so that's the first one, we don't actually render client components, we only Inject these, uh, or like we, this is like React, right? Like it's not something in Next.js, this is something that React does. It will inject those references to client components in the the RC payload. And then what you get uh, when you're rendering to HTML is that it will require those client components, render them to HTML as well. And that is very similar to what you get in, like, say, the the pages writer, right? Like in the, in Next.js 12, in like earlier versions of Next.js, what we did before was basically creating this. Um like it, here it was the like the starting point was like a client component by itself, right? So that was like you could say like a client component reference that we inject into React and then like React would re- render that instead. Uh so everything was a client component previously. And then in like uh in app writer, you get um server components as well, as like this layer in front of that basically. Um something to, to mention here as well um, is that it, it, conceptually it's like two different processes, right? So you have the, the server components rendering, then you have the HTML rendering. But um, in practice this is actually like a streaming thing. So it, it doesn't like wait for the RC to render to then like start rendering to HTML and then like sending it to the browser. It'll actually do them all at the same time. So if there's a chunk of work being done, like that is done in the server components rendering, it will pass it to the HTML rendering. If that is done as well, it will start streaming it to the browser. And that's how you get the, um, the HTML streaming as well uh, in, uh, with server components.
0: Cool. Awesome. So the result of the RSC render is always called the RSC payload, whether it's being used to render the initial render or, it's being sent up to help the client render, uh, navigations and transitions on the client.
1: Yeah. And, uh, it, it's actually the same payload as well. So mm-hmm. like, uh, depending on like, if you give it the same components, you would get the same payload out and you can basically decide, do I want to render it to HTML or do I want mm-hmm. to like send it over the, um, mm-hmm. over the wire to the browser and then like use the, uh, React in the browser to render it
0: instead. Okay, so the references that are the holes of the server components in the payload, it's the environment that knows how to find those. If you were streaming it or rendering it to HTML on the server, the server environment would use the reference to load the component from the server. If it was the client, the client version would know to use the references to reference them that are loaded in the in the browser. But at that, both times the, it's assumed that the, the component exists basically, I'm, I'm guessing. Um,
1: yeah, exactly. So uh, under the hood, what it does is uh, these references, like in the the, the payload that you send RSC payload, that will have like a reference to a uh, a component that is like needs to be loaded, basically, right? right? So this reference is like it needs to be loaded on the server. That means like requiring it on the in the browser in it means time. like importing it mm-hmm. uh, just in time, and mm-hmm. then. Um, under the hood, This all uses suspense, even if you don't have a suspense boundary, right? So, um, if you have a suspense boundary, um, that would uh, like be affected by this. But uh, the uh, the default in React is like there's no suspense boundary, so it will like just wait on all the work to be done, basically. So, like if it uh, needs to load the code, that's totally fine. Um, in case of rendering to HTML, like it can trigger suspense boundaries as well like that's a thing that's like hard to understand when you're first seeing it cuz like i can inject a suspense boundary see the loading state and loading state is entirely like server side um mm-hmm. but then it's like streamed to the uh to the browser like filled in later by react itself and it's like the out of order streaming that mm-hmm. react allows to do
0: cool cool so the okay awesome that that cleared it up i didn't understand that the payload is the render target for the RSC tree, and that payload can be rendered um, on the server, pre-rendered on the server, rendered to stream or HTML, can also be rendered by the client. Um, that makes a lot of sense, that's that's very cool.
1: There's like a part to this, wh- which is um, that the uh, even though I'm saying that the RSC payload is the same,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, in most cases, it actually is not the same. Um, because the uh, what we do as well is that we have this feature in the in the writer which is called partial rendering, where we basically like search for like we diff like what is the current thing on screen versus like the thing that is um, that you're navigating to, um, and then we basically say okay um, you already have the dashboard layout because you're in like slash dashboard if I now uh, navigate to slash dashboard slash settings, it's not going to render the entire like dashboard layout again. It's actually only going to render like that lower bound down.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: that is something that we specifically like built into the NextGes, uh, app apprider. Um, it is like a Next.js thing by itself, basically.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so you, So sometimes you'll send up, the payload is the same, but sometimes you'll only get part of a certain amount of it, a diff of it. Which the client knows to use yeah. to re-render just a portion of the screen. That's an opinion from Next.js that is being used to save re-renders and to you know to not send as much stuff because you already have the header. You don't need to re-render it, but conceptually it's still coming from that same RFC payload.
1: Yeah, yeah, it uses the same APIs. It's just that mm-hmm. like um, it allows you to be flex. Like the React APIs allows you to be flexible with what you're rendering, right? So you can pass it a uh, you can pass it a component, but you don't have to pass it a component. You could also pass it an object that actually has two different uh, React components. Mm. And then those two different React components, you could use that as like uh, um, like more like, because uh, usually if you're fetching like a, a JSON, for example, from API, you can get like two values out uh, or like anything like that. In this case, like you would assume, like, oh, I can only pause one React 3, but you could actually pause as many as you want. Um, we actually do this for um, like, if you're navigating, we also need to render the new head, right? So, mm-hmm. what we actually do is uh, the, um, like the fetch that we do for a client side navigation,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that one has uh, instead of like, one hole to fill in the uh, React uh, tree. We actually have two. So one is the, uh, the the patch that I was talking about, right? So it's like a, a lower bound uh, render of that like new page that you're going to. And then the other part is the the head itself, right? So the, the top part of the head, that is different between the, the two pages, right? So you in this case, like you would have generate metadata, for example, um, and the generate metadata would generate like this head. Um, And that's, like, all part of the
0: the responses fall. Cool. And that's all possible with the React APIs that they expose for this stuff. Yeah. Um, Cool. So I guess one one quick question I had was, do you guys use, is there any terms you all use to differentiate rendering in the higher-level abstract um, sense versus rendering as getting things to the browser, like to actually paint it? Because, you know, we talk about, like, server-side rendering and pre-rendering And then we talk about everything we just talked about, which is really when you render the RSC tree, it's about generating this payload. And then there's a separate question of how that payload gets painted to the browser. Um, So do you guys have any terms you use to kind of differentiate between those two?
1: Or do you just Uh, know you're talking
0: about pre, like when when you're talking about server-side rendering or pre-rendering, we're talking about getting the HTML, letting the browser paint, that sort of thing
1: yeah so for most of what we talk about it, it's like uh, internally at least like the 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 thing here is that um, generally speaking, like we're not concerned with the uh, like the end state of like rendering in the browser, per se mm. right so we're trying to make sure that like the rendering that we do is always like rendering the react tree to a certain state um, after that, you just hand it off to like React rendering, and React rendering will like do the commit and stuff right. like that, like all lifecycle hooks, things like that. So when we're talking about rendering, it's, uh, well, we do have this, the, the, there's a distinction between like the rendering, like RSC, for example. So we do like, I usually call it RSC rendering. Um, so RSC rendering, rendering to HTML, because
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, that is like the, um, the eventual like, outcome of, of doing the initial request, uh, or like generating static HTML. Um, and then there's like, uh, rendering in the browser, but that's like mostly the, the way that we talk about it, because we're obviously like, working on the router itself, and things like that, is that this is like client side navigations, and like mm-hmm. how that like state is updated in that, that way. Um, the part where we do the rendering itself, like that's all like handed off to React eventually. Same as like if you're building like a React app from scratch, um, and uh, you're you're basically just creating a React
0: tree in the end. Right. So okay, that makes sense. If you were to talk about say a static page um, in a new app layout, uh, an app router app, and you want to end up with it statically generated. You would say this thing gets rendered to HTML at build time.
1: So that part in particular, like we call that static rendering. Static so there's like rendering. the there's two concepts here. Like it's static rendering, dynamic rendering. Um, those actually like map closely to um, like what you had in Pages. So like mm-hmm. get server-side props, get static props
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Uh, in terms of rendering. So like not in terms of behavior per se, but like in terms right. of like the way that they're rendered. Um, most of them actually use the same like mechanisms, even right? Like the rendering to uh, to HTML uh, at build time, like that's exactly the same thing as it was in like for pages. We reuse all of that uh, mm-hmm. like logic that we already wrote for that.
0: Okay, got you. But that's how you would talk about it if you were describe if you were defining static rendering. You would say it gets rendered to HTML at build time, and that's a way to talk about more of the the like the actual what's happening as opposed to the rendering of the tree into the payload.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And um like usually you wouldn't even have to reason about um like how the tree is generated per se. Right. Because in the end, like um th- that's what you're used to already in a way. Right. Like the the main difference is RC is like it's the same thing that you had with like client components that you had before. Uh, so client components in this case, like it literally means like the thing that you already had, whereas right. like server components is the new thing. Right. Um, it also means like, because it's new, it doesn't mean that like you can't use client components, right? So right. like what we see often is that people are like, oh, I, I need everything in my RC. Uh, and right. it's like really not the case, right? It's the um, the synergy between the two. Like you you use server components for something different than you use client components for um, and sometimes it's the same thing, uh, like, rendering some markup. But in many cases, it's like, uh, you use client components for interaction and server components for like your data fetching, rendering the, uh, the RC, pay- like RC payload here is like, there's like a serialized form of React, right? So it means right. like, that's how, but like, that is why you don't have to send all this code to the browser, per se, to render all of that. So the, the inherent benefit of using RC is like, you're shipping less code to the browser, but really the way that it works under the hood is like you're just rendering a, or like when you're working with it, it's like you're just rendering a React tree. The only difference is that now it's serialized. Um, right. Almost like, like you are saying, it's almost like a JSON API in, in a way, uh, right. where like you, um, like previously you would have to create like an API endpoint and, and like basically say, I'm going to render all of this. Um, like to HTML or something like that and do like dangerously set inner HTML of that particular HTML that you generated uh, in order to achieve something like that. Whereas now it's like, I'm going to render a React tree. It works in exactly the same like way that I like used React before. The main difference is that I can't have interaction because obviously the server doesn't have state uh, for, for this particular like request, for example. Um, and then you've the eventual outcome of that into uh, a client component with props for example to get more interaction or you don't and then like you don't have the client components and it's just sent to the browser as is
0: yep nice and just to make extra sure i'm i'm clear the payload has no knowledge of any server component at all there's nothing about any server component in the payload which is why if you look at the component tree i mean it makes sense but when you first start doing it, you might be like, oh, here's my page. I rendered it. You look at the React component tree, there is no page. Because at that point, it's been rendered away into just the client tree.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's why um, like in React DevTools, you only see your client components. And uh, actually, I haven't checked this, but like, potentially also the, the P tags and things like that, mm-hmm. that, that you're rendered as part of the, like the tags that you render as part of the RSC right. as well. Um, However, I'm not sure if that is like the eventual outcome here. Like, it might be that like for development, we we end up like building something where we can actually highlight that this is part like was rendered as part of this particular um, like RC component. But as a right now, this is not the case, and like something for flex uh, relation in the
0: future for sure. Cool, awesome. All right, that was super helpful. Um, okay, I think next it would be good to talk about basically this is the other main point I wanted to cover with you was. Um so the caching stuff in Next and React I think uh, less important is like the details of where things are right now and more important again is this mental model because um uh I saw on Twitter you talking with some folks about it and something you said was you know with React we going back to the beginning, it was like this top-down re-render and throw everything away and just re-render every time. And that was solving problems at the time in UI development with things not being in sync in the screen, stale portions of the screen not agreeing with data that was just updated. And React's kind of solution to that, which relied on like the virtual DOM, I guess, was a big part of it, was just say, let's just re-render everything every time anything changes. And that solved a lot of problems. And that one way data flow from the top down, uh, which enabled that was something that we all learned as we learned React. And so moving away from solutions at the time that were like two way binding, surgically updating parts of the tree that were lowered in for performance reasons or for whatever, led to these hard to understand programs, led to bugs. And now we are doing this top down thing and it solved a lot of those problems. And um, You were talking on Twitter how some of the new mental model for building an app with the app router, or even just with the RSC paradigm in general, the architecture in general, it's a shift. You said it's a shift away from thinking about top down by consciously lifting, uh, thinking about lifting up initialization work to the topmost component. And um, you said it's shifting it more to always do the work once per request, no matter where you call it and it's still but you said it's still about composition which is really the important part here and it reminded me also of something i forget who said this someone on the react team it might have been sebastian who said a big part of rsc the architecture in general was how can we bring the benefits of relay to the rest of the react community and i feel like that unlocked something for me too so maybe we could talk about that again not talking about any of the specifics apis but just the mental model that now that we're doing work on the server and server components the kinds of things that we couldn't do in react components before how we still what is the right way to think about that and what's the the react model here if it's not re-render everything from the top down you know you mentioned there's segments that don't change and we want to save work there but there's still this kind there's still some piece of it that is important i think so maybe you could just reflect on that
1: yeah definitely um so this was in particular around, like, React's new cache API, which, um, uh, d- due to, like, unfortunate circumstances, like, personally, I would have called it, like, Memo, but as you know, like, there is a Memo API already. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a use Memo as well,
2: mm-hmm. and they
1: do, like, completely different things, right? Like, use Memo, and um, it's for, like, uh, like in, in component caching of the uh, variable. Um memo itself, like React.memo is a way to do uh like basically like introduce this uh like comp- like basically pass a component into it, which then like does memoization of the component tree um when the props don't change. And then there's cache now, which is like it might sound confusing, because, like kind of the same thing, like memoization caching. Uh like not exactly, but like in the, in the React sense, like when rendering here, it's like, it's more like memorization in the like in the same request. So you're not caching something to a database, like writing it to, to Redis or something and then like getting it back later. You're really just saying, every time I call this function in the same uh, React tree, I just want to get the, the value out. And the idea here is that you pass a pure function to cache so that you always get the same Uh, like value no matter what uh, like arguments you pass in. So if you pass in the same arguments, you always get the same value. And in doing so, this basically means like no matter where you call it, uh, you can always get the same data without actually redoing all the work every time. However, this is a big shift away, like, well, not away because like this is still useful for in the browser, right? So like when you have a A data fetching library that like runs in the browser in like client components, or if you use Redux or anything like that, Um, because really this is about deduping and like deduping work in the same request and making sure that no matter in what order your components render, that same uh, like data fetching code always runs, even if you didn't. uh, Like the the problem here. uh, Let's start with the problem. So the problem Mm -hmm. is. What if we start rendering only that one component that you wrote instead of rendering the entire uh, React tree Mm
2: -hmm.
1: for that page? Um, And as I was explaining before, we actually already do that. right? So we already only rendered the segment that changed uh, instead of the entire page. If we build it in a way that um, you had this, like, global uh, like passing data from like the, the layout down to the page, for example, it would not have been possible because then like we have to send all the data that you fetch during the layout to the browser as well so that once we uh, like start rendering the, the, the smaller slice of the page, we then have to pass all the data from the server to the browser and then from the browser on the navigation request back to the server. Uh, in order to, because all the requests are stateless, right? So you like could get a completely different server that's servicing your request when you do another, uh, like, navigation. Um, so in order to keep this all, um, like, basically, like, easier to understand and, like, not have to send all this, uh, like, extra uh, data over the wire, which you probably, like, in most cases, you actually don't want to send over the wire even, because, um, like, it could be sensitive or it could be, uh, like a massive payload, right? Like your your entire blog post or something like that, um, and then you, we don't want to send it back as well because like that's just like continuous overhead. So instead, the the model uh, is driving you to actually do the right thing, which is uh, memoizing your request, and the only way to do that is by like React having knowledge of memoization within the same request, which is why Cache API exists.
2: Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: then. You can basically say, okay, this this like in the same request, we're not going to redo all this work mm-hmm. uh, while rendering in React. Um, so that's like one part of it. And then like basically this is a like I was saying in the tweet, it's like it's a big mental model shift because like uh, like even if I like wanted to start building an app and I would set everything up myself, so I wouldn't use like SWR or React query or anything like that. My uh, initial way of doing things would also be like, I need this data like globally available to all the components in the app. I'm going to put it at the very top, and I'm going right. to pass it down to everything. It using to the lowest context, common example. ancestor, basically. Exactly. Um, however, that actually introduces like a dependency on that data always being there, right? And that. Um, like I was explaining, like that doesn't exist in like this partial rendering <laughs> world. So um, basically what this means is that like now you can compose React server components. I can basically um, like render the same component like six times across the entire React tree of the, the RC rendering and it would not cause it to do six requests. That's mm-hmm. mostly to allow you to to like be able to compose these components as well. Right. It also helped with like. There's another part that I realized later, um, watching a talk that uh, Malta, the CTO of Foursale, gave uh, at React Summit, um, which is that this also optimizes for this other part of maintenance of your application, which is that it allows you to delete code as well, or mm-hmm. like decide to branch off your code and not mm-hmm. run all this data fetching logic mm-hmm. um, when the page isn't needed. Right. So what I would do before is like, I would go and add like a global context and on this global context, I'm going to say, this is all the, like I'm doing like six data fetches maybe. And these are required at this point in building the app. And like, probably they're going to be required in like a year from now. But in uh, in like two years time, uh, like someone else joins the company and they're like, oh, this doesn't actually make sense. I'm going to consolidate these six requests into the single API. Hmm. Um. And then, uh, they they do all that work, but then you realize, like, oh wait, there is this other uh like place still that I have to like do this request as well. So you can't do this this change.
0: They're decoupled, and we can get
1: rid but- of like some of these uh, requests as well. Even though right. like they're the components have been removed, for example, right? Like that right. used the data, and there's no way for you to know. Okay, it's like that data was always.
0: Dependent. It was just on
1: always it. globally there, right? So you yep. didn't know if it was deleted. Yep. But it's like the the point being that like this also optimizes for code deletion in a way. Yep. Where like I can remove my component and I can know that like now the, the app doesn't actually do this like extra data fetching as well.
0: Yep. Okay. Very interesting. A lot there. Maybe I can say some of it back to you to make sure I, I understand sure. it because I think that was very, very helpful. Um First, I think the point about cache versus memoize is is good to understand because um, I didn't understand it until you just went through that. So you're saying that the React cache is really more similar to memoizing memoization in other languages. What this made me think of is in a Rails app, when you get a request, let's say you get the current user and you have a current underscore user global method and you want to be able to check the current user in the controller, and then maybe later on, you wanna check it somewhere. That current user function that comes with Rails and like an auth library, let's say, is memoized, meaning it's expensive the first time you call it, so it's memoized so that the first time you call it, it connects to the database, fetches it, and then hydrates some Ruby object in memory then the next time or any time after if you call current user it just returns that object in memory it doesn't go through the expensive connection again that's usually what we mean by memoization in other languages and that's kind of what you're saying is the motivation here and in, in the same way you could have you yep. a, a, a current user function and it's going to be using the react cache but that's really what's happening here
1: yeah exactly so you would write a like get user for example or like get user session or um like a that particular thing that that's like like it's in, in most cases' always a, a getter right so mm-hmm. it's not really the set case with the get case
2: mm-hmm.
1: where you basically say okay I'm going to say like okay this thing is always going to be the same no matter where I call it in the same request um mm-hmm. and th- that's good for other reasons as well besides performance also like consistency of the value so like mm-hmm. maybe uh you, you do this like data fetch in the header and then I like you do the fetch in the like layout or like in the Like lower layout or like on the page itself, um, you actually wouldn't want those two to be uh, inconsistent as well. (laughs) Like you want them to be the same. Uh, Whereas, like, obviously, um, especially in larger apps, it could be that someone's making changes to the data
0: continuously. Right. uh,
1: And and then it would change uh, from under you, like in between the fetches as well.
0: Right, right, right. Yep, that makes sense. Okay, so I like that. It's kind of thinking about it as memoization in the larger sense, not like React memo, but it's that is how the cache works. And then kind of for your other points, I think it's interesting to understand how it lets Next you know, re-render partial segments without having the dependency on the top-down data structure. But I think the easier way, at least for me to relate to it as an app developer, is, is what you said, what people are already doing with things like uh, React Query and SWR and Redux. Um, I don't think you have to make a strong argument to React developers these days about the benefits of those libraries, right? And those libraries came about, even though React is based, client React, let's just not even talk about React server components, client React is based on top-down render, and it always re-renders, and the data is consistent, but those libraries let you interface with external stores, right? Things like SWR and React Query, and those use query hooks that you get from those make certain things very, very easy. one, one-way data propping from, one, one-way data passing from the lowest ancestor is still a core part of React architecture. But when you have something that is more inherently global in nature, like the current user or a query that represents what the server-side state is, that's like a single source of truth, and you want to pass that to each component, having all those middlemen components with prop passing is what led to the solution of something like a hook that references a global store. So I think anyone who's using data fetching libraries like those and has a use current user hook understands the benefits of being able to drop in a little avatar, use the current user, see if they have access to this thing and have that be coupled and encapsulated in the component and not having to have the parent have knowledge of that. And I think that's kind of what you were getting at, right? This is a, this is still, it's still, the same React architecture, but there is a situation where these things are a good solution because they are valuing the principle of composition basically over this one-way data flow. Like the one-way data flow is a way to help us make sure we make predictable applications and the thing agrees, but really the most important part about React is is composition, that's the component, right? And so co-locating the needs of this component the data dependencies with the the render output, being able to do that with hooks solves a lot of these problems. It also has the benefits like you described where you can delete it and you don't have to go and see which secret place it was getting the data dependencies from. And now you're saying uh, this memoization, this cache lets us do the same thing on the server. And so you're actually going to be able to take more advantage of Composition React if you do the same thing in your server components, you co-locate the fetch uh, with the part of the tree that needs it, the caching is what lets you do that in a way that is like reasonable from a performance perspective. But fundamentally, that is the benefit that app developers are getting. Is that kind of more or less right?
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it it's conceptually like in the way that you write the code. Uh, so it's not in the the way that's implemented, but in the way that you write the code, it's very similar to what SOBR does. So um, you just write the SOVR and like you provide a fetcher. And if the fetcher is the same, it's always going to use the same, uh, like uh, the same cache value, right? So it's almost like this memorization, but for the client side. And obviously, in the client side, there's there's more to this, right? So it's not just we're going to like reuse the same like cache value because the cache value could also change in the browser. So if it's like mutations, basically, like how do you override the the caching and things like that? So that brings like another part to this, which is like, there's React cache, but there's also a Nexus data cache now, which is like another layer on top of just memoization, basically, where you can have this, um, like, I want to write values to a particular store that is actually shared between all requests as well. So that like, you can make your site faster because like the the caching is, uh, might be faster than uh, going to the database or going to your external API, um, you can make sure that that is always um, reused across requests as well, using,
0: mm-hmm. using this data cache. Got you. And that, that would be a cross request, whereas the React cache is, again, more like memoizing current user in Rails on yeah. a single request. Got you. Um, and is that, does that tie back to... Whenever I heard, uh, I think I, I think it was Sebastian, but Relay did have a similar benefit. It encouraged you to write the data fetching code. I never used it, but this was my understanding. It encouraged you to write the query with the component. If you had the same query in multiple components, the compiler could turn those basically into a single shared thing, that a function that could be memoized, And that way, again, you get the benefit of the co-location of the data fetch with the component that needs it. You get the deduping, so you don't get punished for that. And then you get the deletability. If you delete it, it just goes away, and you don't have to remember where the implicit dependency is.
1: Yeah, it's fairly similar to Relay as well. I haven't used Relay uh, that much either. Um, one of the things that really had, like, th- there's a lot of similarities between like Relay and uh, React server components as well. Uh, there's a good reason for that. Like, uh, um, the, the people that worked on Relay also worked on RSE. Um, so Josefona, uh and um, basically like really has this like concept of um, data like doing data fetching, but also querying components. So you can get like uh, references to components back as well. So you can say basically say like I want to do this query for um, for like a, a post, but then like I also want to to get like the comments component back only if the comments exist or something like that. So it actually is like an optimization there where you can say, I don't want to uh, to get the comments component or like always ship that as part of the browser, like uh, the browser bundle, but actually get it on demand as it's needed based on the data. And uh, it might sound uh, familiar. That's like very similar to what you do if you write this same, like basically it's making this like data layer part part of React itself where you can say, I want to like based on some like of my own conditions, right? Like not a like GraphQL API or anything like that. I want like to have a particular condition here that is uh, I fetch the data from the from a database. I'm saying a database continuously, but like it doesn't have to be a database, right? Like it can be external APIs as well. Um, it's just that like previously it wasn't possible to do this database thing, so that's why like people mention it uh, quite often. It's like you are now back to this. Um, I can do like any data fetching I want, instead of like I need to build an API for the particular data fetching as well. Um, so really, like, you you fetch the data from the database, and then you get uh, the, the result back. And the result's empty, for example. Now I can say, in my component, uh, like comments.lang to 0, uh, let's uh, not render this component. If you don't render the component, it's not going to be uh, shipped to the browser as well.
0: Right. Right, and that's even more of the, the composition point, you know, how if you had a situation where you have to load the data up front and then you ship the code to render separately, now these things are together, they can be co-located within a single component. So you can write business logic is what you're saying basically, right? That says post.comments is not there, so we don't even yep. need to render the comments, um, comments component, something like that. And it's just bringing more of those benefits since these are co-located. Quick question, just technical question about that. In in the app router, the the client side bundle is determined from the ES6 import graph, right? So if you had a page that conditionally rendered a comments uh, component, it would be in the browser code, right? If even if the runtime data said we're not going to render it, because there's a state where it could be there. So the route split bundles are generated from the static ES6 graph, right? So as soon as you import comments and render it, even even conditionally, potentially in the RSC, it'll be in the client bundle for that route, right? And you'd have to use something like lazy if you wanted to lazy load it? Um, As of right now, that is the case. In the future, it won't
1: be. Oh, wow. Um, so the thing is that the, the entire way that this is built is that... Um, React, like like we said, we have this client reference, right. So as of right now, you basically get like client reference uh, going to like, it's this particular bundle that you need to load. However, like most client references will reference the same bundle
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, in the future. Uh, and this is why like we're building Turbo Pack as well and like doing a bunch of stuff around uh, bundling. Um, we're going to create more bundles. With like a smarter uh, like algorithm for creating this the split chunks, basically, right? like where we split the the different uh, bundles. So at that point like at that point you would get only the like it, it kind of depends on like what the size is of the component as well because like mm. sometimes you you would want to like say it's one kilobyte or something. You mm. might actually want to ship it like this extra bit uh, just so that it's cached in the browser and you don't right. have to load it on demand in like a, a majority case. But um basically it's all set up to be able to do that, right? Like you're rendering some component on demand based on like its own browser bundle, um, or like its own JavaScript bundle in the browser, um, and it can load that and like that is all like the infrastructure to do it is all there. The bundlers are not at that point yet. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're working on right now. To to get to a point where we can do this um in a smart way where you can optimize the, the browser bundle more.
0: Cool, but you wouldn't the the mental model and the API from the app developers' perspective wouldn't change. You still use client when you want to start using features, and then when you yeah. import client components and render them from server components, that's where you guys can optimize that over time. But that stuff's not changing.
1: Yeah, it's really the um, like the way that you write the components is exactly the same. as purely a bundler perspective, mm-hmm. like a bundler concern that that we need to uh, tackle basically very cool um and this is purely like if you don't render it right so like this is only the case where you say i'm not going to render the client component right um so like in practice it it doesn't have like a massive like win per se it really depends on what you're building um because what you see instead is that previously what people would do is you, you would build this like one like switch component that basically like based on some like what we've seen a lot is like uh, you're using a CMS, and the CMS is deciding what the layout is. Right. So you have to provide like a list of components.
0: Uh huh. And then you do like a switch rendered. statement on like right. when do
1: you, like I want to render this one? I want to render this one? I want to render this one? Or use like an object, and then like you pass in the value. Um, the big difference with RSC is that, like now I can move this to the server instead, mm. so I don't have to send this. Like this is all the components that are that are possible, mm-hmm. uh, and switching them. Um, instead you can say, I want to render this particular component or that component. Um, and then like, if they don't use, um, um, like if they don't, they're not client components, they, you would get like an instant win here. Uh, and otherwise it's like, when we get to this point where everything is split, you get like a win there as well.
0: Right. Cool.
1: But in the end, like, it's not like it's, it's never worse than what you get with pages today, basically. Right. Right. It's like awesome. important just to know that like a lot of what we have in App Writer is like it's not per se a uh, like a massive performance win. For example, if you like, you, you can basically move your Pages Writer app or like a, like a single page on Pages Writer to App writer, and then um, I guess I thought some people assumed that like magically it would get faster. It will magically get better Core web Vitals because of like some other like. Improvements that we've done to like the way that the router works, the way that streaming works, the way that you have suspense boundaries now—you can do mm-hmm. all these like other optimizations. But if you like move them one to one, the the biggest difference you're going to see is like the middle size by default is less. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Uh, not because like your app is now smaller, but it's because NEXUS is now smaller. It's like mm. because all of this work that React now does, um, we we were able to remove like quite a bit from the Nexus like clients at runtime as well so there's a um, like there there's this misconception that like you would get instant performance win uh, whereas like it's more like you get the performance win once you start moving uh, some of your heavier components for example like say you have like a markdown to to HTML generator or something like that you move that to uh, to the server instead
0: right right cool
1: and it also uh, means that you you get to this point where um where you can say like i get the same app that i already have i'm happy with the, the page starter app um it's more like i can now start optimizing more or like start leveraging some of the newer apis start leveraging react transitions start leveraging uh suspense a bit more um leverage the new app writer and like app writer, uh, is, is solving like 60 different issues yeah. uh, that the pages writer has. Like all like tiny tweaks or things that people were running into with the pages writer that weren't able to be fixed in app writer. Or uh, uh, sorry the other way around. Like we couldn't fix them in pages writer. Mm-hmm. They were running into this problem where like say back navigation with get service app props like wouldn't preserve the right like scroll position. Um, like you move to app writer and now you have that particular um like fix cuz we we architected around these uh like we, we basically took that list of like oh these are the known issues that people are struggling with the most and we're going to fix them in the the app router
0: right the nested router itself set aside server components set aside caching just the nested the, the nested router features of the app router solves a lot of, of problems that's i mean that's how we think about it. i mean i I think that's that's a good kind of takeaway is, um, app router is backwards compatible with pages. You can move your app and it's compatible so that you can get on it. You should expect about the same behavior, but now you have this entirely new set of capabilities that you can take advantage of and start moving parts of your app that couldn't do things you wanted to in pages or can be even better when you do something, like you said, move a markdown render to only the server. So, um, yeah. I know that's. That, I think that's the right way to think about it, for sure. Um, I think one more question I have around the caching stuff, again, from the mental model. I mean, I like what you said. I think I think basically one takeaway here from, again, high-level mental model perspective is all of these pieces are in place to, like you said, encourage people, nudge people to do the right thing, which in this case, is co-locating. The data requirements with the component that needs them that's what allows next to do things like render parts in parallel or only render the parts that need it there's no dependency from the root component all the way down the tree that enables all sorts of these optimizations but really from your perspective as the app developer it just makes it easier to work with in the same way that react query and swr make client apps easier to build because I don't have to I can have a component that renders a user by calling use current user and I can render it in several different routes and the route itself doesn't have to have knowledge of the data dependencies for it it's encapsulated it's more composable that is really the goal with all of this and so if people are used to building server side pages where The route is the entry point you load all the data and then you pass it down to a tree as that gets more complex and you refactor into shared components that are used in multiple places co-locating the data with the components that need them is actually what the goal is for all of this to support that type of development model that type of architecture
1: yeah Um, definitely um Um, and it's uh like this adds like another layer though like you you get the data cache like i said but also this means um, like there is a mindset router cache now as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the main thing to to note here is basically if you've used like SWR or React query before, you know that like every time something changes, so I'm doing like a fetch to the database or like to, uh, to an API to update the database, I have to call like this mutate API, right? So I'm going to like update the user for example, cause like something changed. Um, in Like with RSC and AppRider, that's like mostly the same, right? Like you need to tell Next.js, hey, something has changed because otherwise we're going to stick like to this uh, list of components that we already like got from uh, from the server. Uh, and that's where like router.refresh comes in. So you can say like, you got refresh. it clears out all the uh, clients and caches. Um, and it will also, uh, like there, there's other API's using like serve actions, for example, where you can say revalidate pod or revalidate uh, tag to basically say this particular tag needs to be updated, but that, that also means like the client set writer gets invalidated as well. Um, and it's important cause like otherwise you get like back forward navigation that so cached and things like that.
0: Yep. That was going to be my next question. So I'm, I'm glad you, you brought that up. Basically, given this world where components have their own data dependencies inside of them, and they're building together this tree, they, they compose together in this tree, which lets Next render partial things, things that haven't changed, then you do have the situation where, okay, we have, hi, Sam, you know, in the header of my website, and then now I'm on some nested page that lets me edit my name, and let's say those are the same piece of data. So um, maybe we can talk about it like this again, the mental model. So if you were starting in a rails app or a PHP app, a server driven app, we the user has an expectation that when you load a page, you click on an issues page of GitHub, you're looking at a snapshot, basically. And you don't really expect that page to change until you either click the refresh bar, or you click on an issue, let's say, Then we had JavaScript apps come along. And one of the benefits of them is that we can make them update without the user having to navigate. Right. Um, and so flash forward to something like SWR, which is kind of like a fulfillment of that idea where it's kind of a, you have both of these things you click around and as the user clicks links, they get new data. Maybe they even tab back or wait five seconds and SWR refreshes it. So there's different ways that the data can change. So in an app directory app, in in an app router app, let's say you render the user's name, Hi Sam in the header, and then I'm on a nested page that has a form that lets me change it. Um, From a mental model perspective, are we supposed to think of, okay, the baseline is if I'm clicking around links, let's say I save it. If I click a new link, should I see, expect the new name in the header to happen because of a navigation? If I submit a form, does it happen? If I submit a form with a server action, does it happen? Basically, there's ways that the data can change in something that's already been rendered either via an action that I take on my browser, either a navigation or a form submission. And then there's ways it can change somewhere else. Maybe somebody else updates it and I need refresh. So maybe we can talk about those two and how you think about those two things and how the app yep. developer should think about refreshing parts of the, of the tree. Yeah. It's, uh, it's something I was,
1: uh, writing a, a document about, like, uh, I'm going to post that, um, probably later today or tomorrow, uh, which is basically a reply to like an issue around one of the caches that Nexus has. So like people, uh, had a lot of feedback about it. Like what is the, um, uh, like, why did you add this like 30 seconds uh, caching when I'm navigating, basically, for dynamic pages? Um, and I was basically working on like an, uh, a more thorough reply to like this large issue of like people uh, basically like giving feedback on like, oh, does this doesn't work for me. I need this other like way to do things, basically like opt out or something like that. Um, but obviously, there's like a lot to consider here, and like there's layers of. Um, like partial navigation, for example, back forward navigation, like you were talking about, Um, as well as like, what do you do when you navigate between multiple pages? It's like, there's two parts to this, um, which I already mentioned, actually. It's like, one is actions I take, right? So things that I am doing that should invalidate the router in a way. So, well, so most people actually don't think about like, oh, I need to invalidate the router. It's like, I call mutate or like I dispatch a Redux action or something like that, right? You fetch data or like you do a post request, like you client side, right? You do it like on click, like on submit. And you say, I'm going to fetch the, the API. And that's going to inject like a, like or put requests where you say, like, my name is now Tim, for example. And after you do that, you basically say, like in like if you're used to like building SPAs, you basically say, okay, dispatch this action with the new username or like with the new user object. Um and that would then like update the entire like the, the global state that you have. Like that could be true Redux, but it could also be through any other um like library that you're using, or like even like use reducer or things like that. Um so once you have that mental model of like, I'm going to fetch the API, you get a response back, and then I'm going to update uh, um, the UI with the newest data, right? With RSC, there's like a shift of that, where like I got the data on the server instead of like in the browser, so I don't have access to this like Redux store, for example, or like this uh, the state that I have in the browser. Um, instead, it all lives on the server, right? Mm -hmm. So what do I do when something changes? Mm -hmm. So there's like two ways to do this. So like one is, and that's the current like stable way to do it, um, which is basically saying I'm going to fetch the API, Uh, so like do the put request, uh, say, my name is Tim. Mm -hmm. And uh, now I say, I want to reload the page, right, rather the refresh, which basically means fetch the server again and basically say, okay. Give me the new data, right? So give me the like re the entire page. Like, there's a uh, important difference here. Like, navigating is like uh, partial navigation. Refreshing is never partial navigation. So it's mm-hmm. always going to send you back the entire page.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The thing at that point is like, okay, now my layouts have been updated. Right. If they did like uh, it showed your name as well, right? Right. So now it's saying like uh, hello Tim instead of uh, hello Sam,
2: right?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. So that's like one part. And that would be like calling mutate on the SWR store, let's say. You just say mutate, exactly. no the arguments, you're clearing is, the store, yeah. and you just refresh it, basically.
1: Yeah, which is like, um, that feels weird, right? Because like uh, now you're looking at your uh, like network tab, for example, and you're like, I'm doing this fetch to the server. The data comes back, and I'm doing this fetch to the server again to get the new data. And that's where serve actions comes in. So like serve actions is the way that um, like you're going to do most of this type of mutation is, is what we're expecting. Um, right now it's uh, like we're still working on it, so it's mm-hmm. not in the like you can already use it and try it out, but it's not stable yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but like once it's stable, we're, we're expecting that like most of these like types of mutation that you're doing would actually live there instead. It doesn't have to though. Like it's it's entirely like optional if you want to do it. But then you would call write a refresh or maybe like some other API that we add to the clients that router as well in the future. Mm-hmm. Or um, for when it's stable, um, the basically what you would do is you would create a uh, say like a form and you would pause the server action. So um, uh, you you already like covered server actions a bit in your previous episodes. Basically server actions is like a uh, very low effort way to create like an API endpoint in a way Uh, where you say use server in a function and now you can pass that to um, like true server components to a client component, which then like similar to a client component reference, like you get a server uh, server action reference and a server action reference basically like React knows how to call that like API basically uh, so you basically you like provide React in the client side a, a function called call server. And call server is called every time uh, you, like, submit a form that has a server action reference atti- attached to it, for example. Um, so now what you can do is you can uh, do this. Uh, so let's say we only replace that part, right? Like, the updating part. So now you pause this uh, server action uh, to the client component or you import it which which is also supported um and then you basically call that server action set right so now you have still like have two requests um so you do this request that it's like basically like low effort like route handler um where you say I'm going to update the the data um in the in the database but um I'm still going to call router refresh um because uh, like it's like the the first step here. Right. It's um, a high level wait. So to now say we have the same thing that we changed. had before. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's the same thing as before, but now you mm-hmm. have um, like uh, await uh, server action, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then like await writer. Re- like, well, yeah. Like you call writer to refresh. You don't have to wait that one. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you get the exact same workings. Uh, that's all there. You have two requests. But now really, like, we still have the same problem, right? We're doing two fetches and like, why can't the server just re-render in the same request? So that is where uh, revalidate pod and revalidate tag come in. So revalidate pod and revalidate tag are basically like a way that you can say, I want to rather the refresh, I want to get this like rendering of the, the current page that you're on. As part of that same round trip that you're going to um, uh, to the server for for the server action, so basically instead of saying, refel uh, or uh, rather refresh, you remove rather refresh, and now you go to the server action, and in the server action you say, revalidate pod, and then you provide like the the pod that you want to revalidate or like purge uh, from the cache, or you say revalidate tag, and you can basically like, tag all your fetches with the the particular like tag that you want to invalidate. For the most part i think like in the in the majority case you're going to use valid tag actually because it's like more like surrogate keys where you can say
0: i was gonna ask this
1: particular that. fetch is um for the blog right so you, you then you can say like i want to uh, like purge all the blog uh like data cache entries and that would also invalidate the the client set writer as well as part of that so uh there, there's like three things it does it's like it's going to render the page It's going to uh, invalidate the router cache and it's going to um, like apply that new rendered page to the to the router cache again got you So then you get like uh, in the same round trip you update the database and you render the new page right and it's like something that is really hard to do if you don't have this like end-to-end system like what you get
0: in next basically Right. So that's the server actions from react are the missing piece there, but coupled with next and the knowledge of all the caching layers. It's basically, if you were using Apollo, a lot of people who have used Apollo again, similar to react query SWR, Apollo has a cache. And if you're making an update, you can clear the cache. So it starts out fresh. But a lot of times you're making a mutation and you have more knowledge of which parts of the cache the mutation is changing. So the current user is changing from Sam to Tim. I can go in to the Apollo cache and update it so that the source of truth there is the cache and it's updated before I hear back. And then when I hear back, it kind of just no opposite. But the idea being you have a mutation, you know more about where this should change, what data this should change, and which components are reading from it. And that's why people do that sort of thing with SWR and Apollo, because conceptually they want all these things to happen at once. And so you're saying it's the same thing. Now it's all driven on the server, which has all these benefits, but with APIs like revalidate tath- tag and, and revalidate path, you can get it all back. And so that's how you would expect. the If the user is taking an action that should change data, you're the developer, you're writing that path, you know which data is changing, and you can revalidate the user tag, let's say, and any component that needs it will get it as part of that same request, basically. Yeah, exactly. So
1: it's going to re-render the entire page, um, mm-hmm. automatic, well, yeah, automatically. It's like implicitly happening in the background. Right. So you don't even notice, like you don't call like next.render or something. Right. It's like you call revalidate part, and right. it will automatically do it. Cool. Um, so so that basically brings us to like like that's all wrapped up right like how do i do like i am making changes i now it's the like the current
0: user is is yeah. making a change
1: so now it's like um uh, uh, i i am browsing the website but sam is in the ve- like in the back end making new products or something like that mm-hmm. um, so you're like on the this e-commerce store you go to slash /products when do i see like your edits basically yep um so the, the quick explanation there is like, there's two uh, timings for this. So like one is the uh, the page uses static rendering. It's so like the, the write uses thing, the static rendering. So like you basically say uh, everything on my page is static and you generate like a, basically we call this full ride cache. So it's like the, you generate the full HTML for the page as well as the full RSC payload. And then we send that every time you request it. And then they can revalidate in the background, same as like what izar did uh, in uh, in Pages. Um, but really, it's uh, like that is like let's say the static case basically. So like static means we're going to cache it in the client side writer for five minutes, unless you call writer refresh or you call a server action that does revalidate pod because like like I said, those clear the client side writer cache. Um, so really, what you do here is you go to this uh, products page, and now I like for five minutes. If I don't refresh, right? If I do, like, if I do a manual refresh, it's obviously going to clear the client set writer cache because like you don't get the same JavaScript uh, instance there. But the um, uh, the case here is basically I start navigating around, come back uh, back to it after five minutes, and now my like page is the latest basically. Um, and this could be like if you refresh, you already saw the the latest like update that you made because you called revalidate pod in like a route handler, for example. Um, however, um, the like that five minutes mark is actually like a lot better than what you had with get static props in pages. Because get static props in pages was like we're going to cache it forever. Good right. luck. Uh, like right. refresh, and then you see the latest thing. Um, in AppRider, we actually gave it, like, a limit, right? So five minutes is a limit. Um, now the difference is with dynamic, in dynamic, in the dynamic case, it's, like, um, you get 30 seconds instead. So what that means is, like, you go to the page, um, and uh, then you leave the page. And, like, after you leave the page, like, 30 seconds after that, it's gone out of the cache. Um, so why 30 seconds? Like it's uh, kind of an arbitrary number in the in a sense. Like we, we have to pick like some number, and thirty seconds is like sort of a uh, a time between like if I am going to navigate very quickly between other like tabs, for example, because uh, you can also build tabs using uh, parallel routes or um, like some kind of like UI similar to what for like marketing page tab where you can like navigate through like this list of like five different tabs that you have like in the header. Um, for that one, it's like you click on the link and then you click back on the same link that you were at before. Like you instantly see that page again. Uh, that's like why this, this 30 seconds exists. Um Especially like on slower networks or like slower phones, things like that. This actually helps uh, UX quite a bit because you don't get like more spinners basically. Um, and, and it doesn't cause like extra layout shift and things like that. Now for... Um, so that's like the, the 30 seconds cache, but this can also be invalidated using uh, rather refresh or like revalidate pod or anything like that. So I go to the page, I uh, I see the, the latest uh, uh, product that you added. Uh, I, I go to another page, you added another product. I go back, I don't see it, but uh, like in 30 seconds, um, I, I do the same action that you, you do see it. Um, And that is really, like, the, the, that's all there is to it, basically. (laughs) it's, like, 30 (laughs) seconds, that's it. Um, We're still exploring, like, does this 30 seconds, like, do we want to allow you to change that Mm -hmm. to, like, be lower, for example, like a lower bound, like, five seconds or maybe even zero where you always navigate and you see the latest? But that does mean that we need to figure out, like, what is the thing that people are expecting? And that's why we, we like why I'm writing this like post on like yeah. how does exactly like every single like interaction work. Um, because at this point, um what we're seeing is that there's also confusion around uh this like I'm making an action, like I, I'm making some change myself. And right. that doesn't invalidate the writer cache. Right. Because that would be um, a so... that would be an
0: error in their code from the perspective of if, if you are writing code in the application that mutates there's a known path of mutation you should be signaling to the system that this invalidates all blog posts or this invalidates these routes that's the way to solve that problem this is a different case where there's basically a server driven change that's not coming from the current user and the question is how to get that data into the into the user session
1: exactly yeah so um and there's ways to do so it's not like I can't show you the latest version of the the, the route. Um, it's more like um, you can get the SWR behavior, for example, right? Like the mm-hmm. focus, uh, like on focus, do router refresh.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: can also do um, like in use effect with like the path name uh, passed in. You can say uh, like use effect rather than refresh. That's totally fine as well.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Um, so in that case, like the the component mounts. Uh, or, like, the new page mounts, and then at that point you say, let's get the latest data. Uh, that does cost like, some uh, UX that's, like, not super
0: ideal, like the... But it's the same UX that you get for SWR. SWR. Re- it's, or, li- like, you, it's literally yeah, stale while revalidate yeah. because it's going to render immediately yeah. from cache, and then on the second frame, the effect will trigger a re-render, and so it's yeah. just like SWR. Yeah,
1: exactly. And, and it's, like... A, a component that we're going to document as well. Like it's cool. a, it's fairly simple to write it yourself. It's like, right. just like use path name, right. use effect, pass the path name in the um, dependency array and call write it refresh. And then like, it will only call it when the path name changes. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have a component for that. Like we, we wrote one for, um for the Purcell like dashboard, which, which also used the uh, still our date behavior. Um, mm-hmm. So, so that's cool. like still, um, coming soon in this, like, post that I'm writing. Um, so then there's the, the last part to this, which is, like, um, back-forward navigation. So back-forward navigation is slightly different, where um, that one doesn't have a, a timeout, uh, mm-hmm. it, like, a particular timeout. What it actually has is it has a... Uh, like, it just keeps the components around basically like the, the segments that were rendered. Um, so from the previous page as well, um, you can invalidate that using Reddit refresh, for example, or revalidate pod. Like, it's the same thing that's invalidated, like with all the other ones.
0: It is. You, but you this can one, or you can't?
1: Uh, you can. So like, if okay. you call rather refresh, it will still be uh, like cleared out as well. Um, However, that has some trade-offs, right? Because like the reason that we keep this around is that like if you click back, you always get this page immediately. And the reason that we need to render it immediately is that uh, scroll position depends on that, actually. So like mm-hmm. in order to get the scroll, like the native browser scroll position, you need to uh, like get everything rendered in this like particular like window of time. Uh, yeah. And generally, like, it looks even blocking the main thread, like as part of that as well. So we had to make a change in React in order to make it work for, uh, really well, which is like we we basically like added this thing where if a React transition is called within pop state, it will actually like bill out of doing uh, like uh, concurrent rendering. it will actually be a synchronous render instead uh, only for pop state because uh, that's like a user interaction as well. It's like similar to onclick and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that where uh, you click a button, so it needs to do something synchronous, mm-hmm. basically.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so because we do that now, and like the, this change in React landed, uh, if you click the back button in AppRider, you always get the right like uh, scroll position, which is like, th- this is this whole thing in like pages writer where um, like scroll position would often be not exactly where you uh, wanted to render. This is multiple reasons, like get service of props at some particular behavior, around like refetching um, the uh, get static props didn't really have this problem, but then like you could never invalidate it. So it would never like actually get cleared out. Um, and now we have this thing where if you click back, you see the previous result. So like it doesn't do a new fetch or anything like that. Uh, but it actually is more like the back forward cache in, in the browser itself. Mm. So it's like very similar, like you, you get what you were viewing already. Um, Interesting
0: question so let's say you visit twitter you load the data and rsc render all these tweets you scroll down two pages then you click notifications and you render that and then you have a button that says like see notifications so in my code i say on click router.refresh let's just say i do that and then i click back so the home page is still in the cache or just a description without the data or with the data. Um, no, it's all gone at that point.
1: So rather okay. refresh, like the, the way to think about this is like rather that refresh is the same equivalent as revalidate pod slash. Uh-huh. Um, and it might sound weird, but like revalidate pod slash means I'm going to invalidate the, the slash route, but also anything below it uh, and anything below it is like everything. all routes. Right. Right. Cause that's the root of the project. Um, in the future, we'll have a more granular, um, like uh, clearing of the cache. Or if you can't revalidate slash mm-hmm. notifications, for example, mm-hmm. it would not invalidate uh, the caches for like the homepage, for example. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in that right. case,
1: like back navigation would still
0: be the it same. Behave, and, as you expect, uh, it would be just like the browser does yeah. where... Yeah. Yep. That's that that's a tough one actually because this this has come up since I've been doing Ember where you think about you can ask a question you know you're on GitHub you see you know 10 open issues you click issues you close one and then when you go you go you click back what what should what should you see you know and, and different frameworks yep. even server side frameworks answer this question differently um, there's an argue, there's one line of thinking that a browser should always show you the stack that was in history. So it should show you a stale page because that's what the user's trying to do. But then if you think about doing that on like a a banking website, you click account, you deposit (laughs) money, and then you click back, you're looking at a page that's stale. And the question is, does the user even understand what they're looking at? That seems confusing. And so I guess app developers should be able to have control over that because it's different for different apps and that's kind of what you're saying they can do.
1: Um, yeah, so you get full flexibility on like mm-hmm. what what parts you want to invalidate in a way mm-hmm. um, And obviously like th- there will be edge cases for that mm-hmm. as well um, and and there's like ways to work around it. So like if you want like your back navigation to always be the latest, you can do the right. same like trick where you do use effects uh, right. with try to refresh. Right. And then we'll do like a still validate like uh behavior where, on back navigations as well. Um yeah, so basically like that is the the, that the covers two all parts basis right now. Yep. Yeah. The only thing here is like um try figure out like what is this like if we allow you to disable like 30 seconds, for example, or like mm-hmm. make it lower or things like that. lower is fine, actually. Like th- we could do that easily. Um what if you said no, or like zero, basically? Like, what happens in that case? Like, do you get a navigation where um, it, it fetches new data, but like it's not going to get you new layouts, for example, right? Because mm-hmm. so like the layouts will not update when you're mm-hmm. doing partial re- like rendering, because the layout will be the same between the two pages. Um, so it's really like figuring out like what is the right like trade-off, which in the end, like, mostly everything is a trade off uh, in, in choosing this uh, behavior, but um, like, in the end, like, you, you'll you be able to build like an app that is like, I read my own rights. That's another thing that we like spend a lot of time on uh, for, for server actions, so, like that render, uh, after you make this database uh, change or anything like that, and calls revalidate pod that render is always going to get the latest uh, value out of the cache. Uh, So out of the data cache, for example, Uh, or like no hit in the data cache and then like it will fill it as well. Because otherwise what happens is like you call uh, like update my database, we start this render for you, but then like this render is going to return the the old value, which also doesn't make sense. Um, So like there's a lot of like small details that Uh, like, fit together into this, like, whole model of, like, if I'm making changes, I call something from next in order to say, things have changed, right? So this is, like, rather refresh for, like, client-side code, or refilled pod, refilled tag for server-side code.
0: Right. Right. I think it would be interesting if you could disable all the caching layers just to understand, and then you kind of add them in. I guess, from... Do you have a way, an order in which you think of these things from your perspective? Let's say we remove everything, and maybe the first one is kind of like the client side layout stuff so that you don't re render ancestors. And then it's like the cache, like the memoization stuff we were talking about. Does it kind of go from this? I guess just quick, we can be quick about it, but like, do you think about the caching layers as? starting like the first level 1 the first layer is the client and it moves back to the server i am guessing that's probably how it is right
1: yeah it's uh we actually made a, a very clear like i'm saying this myself so like it might not be clear to you but uh the like in the the new caching documentation in the uh, like on the nexus docs uh if you search sort of for caching or like in the sidebar click on caching uh we, we made this visual where uh, basically, it shows like going from client to server, what happens if it's a miss, what happens if it's a, a hit, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So your case, like uh, what you're explaining, is like, what is uh, what if everything is a miss, right? Like if mm-hmm. it didn't exist at all. Mm-hmm. So you basically go from like client-side router cache, so it's like the RC payload and like the spec forward thing. Um, that's like all the client-side actually, and then like you go to the server-side, right? So that you have the full route cache, usually that was like known as like ISR or uh like th- this like particular like caching for for next um if that one doesn't uh, like a, if it misses basically mm-hmm. then at that point you basically hit the rendering right so mm-hmm. now we're rendering a page so we're mm-hmm. rendering the, the rsc pay- the payload to uh to then like render to html So that means like we're we're rendering, so like Mm -hmm. at that point you hit the memoization, right? So Mm -hmm. the the Mm -hmm. react.cache API. So say like we hit the first one of that. So you do like fetch to your database uh, or like your data store. Um, You basically say, okay, uh, we're going to hit the, like the nexus data cache now, right? So the nexus data cache is like this um, key value store basically where we can, like write responses to. Um, so that one, uh, if that hits, that that basically means like you get a very fast read uh, of the data.
0: Uh, if that misses, then we go to your data source. And that one is shared across requests. And that one is shared across yeah. requests. But the memoization yeah. is not. Exactly, yeah. Cool, got it.
1: Yeah, so the data cache is persistent, whereas mm-hmm. the uh, memoization is in memory, yeah.
0: That That's more like thinking about Redis, thinking about that like, like a Redis basically.
1: Yeah, you can think of it as Redis, Memcache, memcached like
0: mm-hmm. thing
1: like that that is like a key value store like yeah. on versell this is slightly different where like we we built this thing where uh the data cache like for data cache is uh replicated across the world and things like that as well
0: gotcha cool yeah. awesome and then the full route cache you said on the server that's like the dynamic, the static stuff. That would be probably that's more like, like
1: that's what you call static, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah So it's like a static HTML, a static yep. RC payload. Yeah,
0: maybe more like a Russian doll caching in Rails, where you mark a segment of the template as being cacheable until this surrogate key changes or something like that. It's just a chunk of the HTML, basically. That's not about Redis, and it's not about memoizing current user. It's like a separate.
1: So the, the full route cache is uh, this is the reason why we call it full route. It's like the full rendered HTML.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um So it's really like static page, like fully gotcha. static HTML. Gotcha. Um, for what what you're referring to, that's more like what the data cache layer okay. uh, helps with. So that gotcha. that one is like I can basically get ISR at the individual fetch level, right? Uh So I can say revalidate on this fetch is going to take like 10 seconds, whereas this uh, revalidate on the the actual post content takes uh, like a full day, maybe, or something like
0: that. Got you, cool. So
1: similarly, you can now say like, I'm going to do dynamic rendering, but I'm going to make sure that all my data reads are uh, extremely quick by saying that the individual fetches here are now cached, right? Like my header is cached, uh, my, uh, like, Layers uh, below it is, is cached as well.
0: Yeah. Right, right, right. Cool. Awesome, man. Hey, why don't we wrap up with just a few rapid fire? Because we had a few questions. But I think um, I think that was an awesome overview of what you've been thinking about, what you guys have been working on. It helped me understand a lot for sure. Um, so does that sound good? Yeah, definitely. Cool. Um, just, yeah, a few rapid fire questions. So first would be revalidate path and revalidate tag. They're not promises, so you don't await them, right?
1: Correct. Yeah.
0: So, so how does that work where you call them in the action? Is that is that to let next have more flexibility about the revalidation times and the schedules and everything? Um you can actually
1: call multiple. Uh so if you call revalidate pod slash revalidate podslash dashboard, uh like stuff like that, like you can you can do like six at the same time. Gotcha. And then uh the, the reason that like you don't await that like in like you had the date in the in, uh, API routes in pages. Uh that one you would await because like that was the the revalidate one was actually the request that was invalidating the uh, like revalidating the page. What you do now is like uh revalidate pod, revalidate tag are more like purging methods. Mm-hmm. So you basically like, purge the cache instead. Got you. Um, and then the rendering itself that happens after your function runs. It's like we wait for your function to complete. Uh, so that's the one that's awaited, like your function itself. And then at the end of that, we we basically like collect, like while you're calling revalidate tag, we basically like keep an array of like these are the pods that you're or like these are the tags that you want to invalidate. Um, one of the the mind-blowing, like, things uh, about this is, like, revalid pod is actually just, like, revalid tag with mm. a particular, like, internal key on it. Um, and it can hold, like, more, like, it can hold HTML and stuff like that as well. So in the future, um, we we basically expect that, like, the, the data cache and full write cache are the same thing. The reason that we're explaining them as two separate things is that they're conceptually, like, if you're thinking about it, um uh, they they work in a slightly different way and they, they run at different times as well like you see them in build instead of like um well here's the thing you can also see the data cache at build time
2: mm-hmm. you can
1: say like i'm going to render uh like the header at build time um that will actually see the cache as well and that will uh-huh. be used uh during uh dynamic uh, request as well um but like conceptually like the the html and RC payload, like the entire payload for static pages, is like separate thing in the same, like underlying caching mechanism.
0: Interesting. Kind of along those same lines, someone asked on Twitter, and I, I've also had this question about like an ORM. I wonder if you guys had ever, over the seven years you've worked on Next, thought about an ORM, that would be something that potentially could do some of the stuff automatically, right? If next had knowledge of the data dependencies it could build the surrogate keys like you mentioned before it knows yep. you're modifying post colon one and so it can automatically purge all the cache entries that rely on that um, have you guys ever talked about that or yeah
1: an RM specifically not but um about this case of like if I call my like uh, my SDK where like say you're using uh, like I don't want to try to throw anyone on the reverse, but like say you're using a CMS provider the CMS provider has like already has this like SDK for Next.js, for example mm-hmm. they could actually totally like build in their valid pod valid tag mm-hmm. into their mm-hmm. SDK instead right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so at that point you basically say like I'm updating my post or like I'm inserting something into my cart or like I'm doing a, a like database update okay now I'm going to call like that one is going to call refilled pod or tag and everything will work automatically. Right. So then the code that you as a user are writing is just like await, uh, like, uh, orad provider dot insert. And then like, right. it will do it automatically.
0: Right. Very cool. Awesome, man. Uh, anything you want to say before we wrap up?
1: Um, good question. Uh, no, I, I would recommend like trying out, the uh, um, the Rider. Um, know what you think. Um, the thing as well if you've tried Apprider before um, we, we've been working on like a lot of performance improvements so both in the memory usage uh, like side of things as well as development performance production performance. So if you used uh, like Apprider slightly after it came out and like ran into issues or anything like that would highly recommend like trying it again uh, on the latest version so like install like NPM install next at latest. Um, and you'll basically be able to, like, in some cases, like we, we saw like, a over 10 X performance improvement for, for development, um, cause of like various like, uh, OS specific, uh, conditions that we ran into, uh, which is like, we do a whole podcast on, on that by itself. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, uh, now is a good time to try it out again. Um, and we're, we're still working on like ironing it out, like smaller bugs and things that people are running into this like caching thing I was talking about uh, the 30 seconds uh, that' being configurable or not it's, it's like one of them. Um, it's definitely like still try like working towards uh, like new features again, but like right now we're really like heads down making sure that everything is um, like as performant as possible and and that like the, the things that people are reporting are actually solved as well. So you might not see like massive new features, but instead, what you'll see is here's a lot of performance improvements. Here's like bug fixes that you asked for, um, and uh, education materials as well, right? Like, so we did a new uh, caching documentation that this like everything we talked about uh, today, but
2: mm-hmm.
1: in a form that has like the, the visuals as well uh, mm-hmm. for it, um, and then. Um, we're also still working on like the learn course, for example, it's like Nexus or access learn is going to have an app writer version of that very soon, uh, which will basically like help you walk through all these concepts, like how do I fetch data from, uh, from database or external source? How do I update? What do I do with like server actions, for example? Uh, things like that, um, we're still working on server actions as well, uh, like I mentioned, like the are moving towards stability. We're working on uh turbo pack. So it's getting very close actually, like uh, really excited to see uh, where that goes. Um, could uh, spend a whole episode on that as well. But like the, the quick overview here is like, why don't we use like another like bundler or, or like a uh, uh, bundling uh, thing? Or like, why don't you use, why, why don't you keep using Webpack as well? It's like a question that comes up sometimes. Uh, it's really about like, with server components, what we're expecting is that people are going to build even larger JavaScript apps with even more code. Like what we're seeing now is that like uh, there's like icon libraries that ship like eleven thousand modules in a single module. Uh, so like, nice. Um, those all have to be bundled and uh, packaged in a certain way and tree shaken. Um, we're trying to do like these optimizations there where like you basically get this, like, it's not about, like, beating the existing, like, standard, basically, it's more about, like, how do we make sure that this thing, uh, because the the thing that we didn't really talk about is, like, this is the architecture that we want to build for the next, like, five to 10 years for next years. And, uh, like, in order to get there, we basically need, like, the performance for development to be uh, in a certain shape as well. Applications keep getting bigger, like our own application, like com, is, uh, is getting like larger by the day as well, because like we have uh, like hundreds of engineers now. Um, and in order to to get there, we basically need the framework to level up that like bundling as well. And, um, and Server Components doesn't have like a native bundler right now, right? Like we, we build like something for like using Webpack. But it actually means like you have three Webpack instances that talk to each other to basically like, figure out what is the, the like combination of bundles, basically. So what if we get like a native like single graph, uh so single JavaScript graph um that can output both server components, client components, uh, and things like that. Um there's like a whole like lot more detail to this, but uh like so Webpack is definitely going to be um, like this, like bundler that has the built in, uh, react server components. And that's like where we're at today already. Um, so I'm excited for that. I'm excited for, uh, for the education materials. Cause like that will really help people understand, like, how do you build this? Uh, well, and like there, there's people there much better at explaining all this stuff, uh, than, than me and creating this uh, visuals. Um, so yeah, that's, that's mostly it. I've uh, been enjoying uh, listening to, uh, you talking about, uh, all, all of this in the podcast as well. Um, I think it's like, uh, yeah, there, there's like a lot of like, this is a big shift, right? So like totally understand that like, not everyone's going to like it. Um, I, uh, personally, like this is something that I've been working on for quite a long time. So like in the end, like, uh, I understand the concepts myself already, which makes it like harder for uh, to see like oh, this is the thing that like is harder to understand for for others. Um, but uh, the DevX team at Vercel has been super helpful there as well, like talking to uh, like both customers and uh, and people in uh, like on Twitter and uh, in, in GitHub and all that. Um, so it's been nice to see that like this this collaboration with them is is going really well as well.
0: Nice. I'm so glad you guys are writing three Webpack servers and not me (laughs) talk to each other. Um, Dude, I've really enjoyed uh, watching you guys and the whole team uh, build this out. I kind of know what you mean. Like it's 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 new territory Um, and and it's but it's exciting. I, I think people can sometimes get carried away, especially people who, you know, are very online on Twitter as using that as like their rubric for when they should be using something or learning something, you know, me and Ryan and all of our education stuff that we've done really, it's pretty simple advice. The way we think about it is, you know, the website and the docs are kind of the guiding star, like the the North star, the guiding light. And, um, you know, I've seen Dan talk about this a lot, online where there's a tension between exposing your thought process the work in progress what you're doing but versus people getting excited and jumping on but i know we've seen a lot of people really excited about the work and found it really been really successful with it and um i know you guys have to deal with a lot of criticism on on twitter so uh i just want to say from my perspective i really appreciate all that time that you put into communicating because you guys would be totally justified in working behind closed doors as you're figuring this stuff out but you've chosen to to be more public for our benefit so i appreciate that i know it can come with some frustration sometimes or people being critical but um i know i've learned so much from you and uh the whole team just being open and public with that so um appreciate that
1: thanks um yeah there's definitely um uh, been like a lot of conversation about like rsc and and all that um, i did want to mention one more thing which i uh forgot to mention earlier, which is that the React team uh, has been uh pretty open about like documenting uh more of RSC and and they're actively working on that. So like the React.use and things like that are already being documented. Um and like there, there's a lot more coming there basically. So I wanted to give them like a shout out of like it's coming. Uh it takes a lot of effort to write all these docs. Um and mm-hmm obviously like the like server components have been in the, the react canary channel, which is like, it's not, not stable basically. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like, uh, um, like this new channel where they can collaborate with framework authors to mm-hmm. basically get to this point where like, we're going to put it in react stable for everyone. Um, while we iron out all the like individual pieces that might actually like break or, um, uh, i mostly like break as in like break people that are already using the stable React, Right. So like mm-hmm. if you're using the react canary, like Next.js can like smooth over a lot of the the changes that happened there. Um, and obviously like we're working with the react team, like some of the mem- members of the react team, uh, are, are working at for sale, um, mm-hmm. as, as part of their own team as well. So we're collaborating with them with Next.js. Um, there's been, uh, and that collaboration has been really good as well. So like we're in a spot now where like things that previously like has had to do, where like uh, we just like loading code, making sure that the um, like meta tags are uh, like correctly injected into the head. Like we created this like next head, which you, you've probably used. Next head is like a custom renderer of JSX in a way uh, and that causes issues as well. So now we have, like, built-in support for, like, meta tags being rendered as far as React Tree as well. Um, nice. So there's, like, things that uh, the the folks working on React at cell have been able to contribute into React itself that actually help everyone, right? Like, not just Next.js is going to help, like, uh, other frameworks as well. Nice. Um, where, like, uh, uh, like it's it's preloading, it's like uh, injecting things into the head, uh, async transitions, which is like uh, a big thing in server actions. This basically means like, what if you can run a function that is like start transition async instead of like start transition a function that, that can't do any async work, which that means that the, the rig that you do is part of the same transition. So you can use the data that comes back from this like API call that you're doing to then do a set state, Mm. which means that if you um, do this fetch and then do the, the, like, set the state there, um, React will automatically keep track of, like, all the updates that come after it as well. So if you, like, for example, do a um, good example is, like, an input field where the, like, the results are fetched, basically, it will automatically do the like apply the right last state after you stop typing. Very cool. Um, and stuff like that is really interesting. Like, obviously, uh, like I said, many things that you could do a full podcast episode on, in mm-hmm. um, like all these new, uh, like all the new features that have landed. But it's uh, it's interesting to see that like all of this is like kind of fitting together into this like Next chest package of like, here's the framework to do uh, like many of these like smaller UX things that you could previously like either, like you could do it, but it was massive effort to do it
0: or it's outside. Or of react. you
1: couldn't do it at all.
0: Right. Right. Very, very cool. It's cool to see that stuff coming to react proper, you know, first class, like I'm, I'm excited about when you talk about things like transitions and async functions, I'm thinking about like animations. And I know that's always been in the back of the react team's mind, but it's cool to see you guys working together and, um, Yeah, hopefully people can listen to this if they're curious. But again, like you said, it's work in public. It's on progress collaboration between Next Team and React Team. Don't feel like you have to run away from this and um, go update your applications. That's how I treat this stuff. And I don't ever feel, again, that anxiety that you see sometimes with the people who are public about being critical or or whatever. This is kind of like a re I think of this as research. It's like ongoing research. We're getting to look into the minds of the research scientists and learning along the way. And um, hopefully, you know, for folks that mental model discussion is that always helps me see what's the what is the end game here, right? You're not having to think about this stuff, but the caching stuff or the different Uh, components being rendered in parallel that's how it happens but the mental model is this co-location this componentization um interweaving client and server features that's the really that's how you want to be thinking about the paradigm and so um for that i think um that was really great super helpful and uh, man i really appreciate your time this was awesome thanks for having me cool all right let's wrap it up and um thanks for listening and uh we'll talk to you next week all right thanks again tim Bye.